Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Tuesday, the 4th of May. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Here's how we're making you smarter today. Public health experts take a page from get-out-the-vote organizers. Plus, President Biden changes course on refugees. But first, the latest fight over voting rights is today's one big thing. Texas is the latest battleground when it comes to voting restrictions. The Republican-controlled legislature could pass new laws as early as this week. And you're already hearing companies and activists lobbying against the bill, which they say could be worse than the recent changes in Georgia. Axios' Steph Kite is here to catch us up. Hey, Steph, good morning. Good morning. Steph, what's in these bills? These bills are pretty sweeping. There are a lot of different measures that are included in both the Senate bill and the House bill, both of which are in the House right now. Some of the key measures include an end to 24-hour voting and drive-through voting. And these were moves that a lot of places took in Texas because of the pandemic. And both 24-hour voting and drive-through voting was used disproportionately by voters of color. So that's something that a lot of activists who I spoke to pointed out and said that it seems pretty clear that these measures are intended to hurt the ability of people of color to turn out and vote. People who support the bills in Texas say that they're trying to standardize the voting process across the state. But Different counties in Texas look different. Different cities and rural areas need different things to provide for their populations when it comes to elections and voting. And so a lot of people think that that's just an excuse for making it harder on especially cities where we saw a lot of Democratic turnout in Texas. And Steph, it's not just activists. We're already seeing companies like Dell and American Airlines also come out against these changes. They have. Both of those companies came out and said that they oppose these bills. And the people I spoke to said they're expecting more big companies that are based in Texas to come out and speak out against these bills as we're seeing the bills move through the legislature. And it's really a key tactic for Democrats in Texas because Republicans control the legislature. They're really trying to push this economic argument and getting big businesses to put pressure on Republicans and say, this is going to impact our employees, and we want to make sure our employees have access to voting. And you talked to Beto O'Rourke about this? I did. He said they're just trying to raise awareness sooner, that they felt like people really spoke out about Georgia when it was too late. So they're trying to get the ball rolling earlier this time in Texas. How is Texas changing in terms of people's voting patterns? Well, Texas has been turning blue slowly over the past several years. It's also a booming state and a quickly diversifying state. And we just found out with the new census numbers, the state will be getting two additional House seats. So it makes the political dynamics even more interesting to watch. Republicans are really trying to keep Democrats out of power there. And we're seeing that in a lot of different ways. And one of them is the push for these voting restrictive bills. How much does what's happening in Texas reflect other parts of the country as well as we're thinking about restricting voting rights? We really have seen a surge in bills that would restrict voting rights across the states. The Brennan Center has been tracking a lot of this. And the states that we're really seeing the most movement are states that have Republican-controlled legislatures, places like Georgia and Texas. And even Florida recently passed a bill that added some restrictions to voting access, although it wasn't quite as bad as other states like Georgia. Axios political reporter Steph Kite. Thank you, Steph. Thanks for having me. In a moment, how Colorado's trying to get more people vaccinated. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Nyla Boodoo. 
Steph and I were just talking about voting rights restrictions in Texas. Well, in Colorado, get out the vote is turning into get out the vaccine. About 33 percent of people from Colorado are fully vaccinated so far. Axios' John Frank is here to tell us how this is happening in Denver. Hey, John. Great to be here. John, how are people using tactics similar to get out the vote efforts in Colorado? It's almost identical. I mean, the main premise of get out the vote is to identify the population you want to vote, make contact with them, and then inform them about how to go vote. A political operatives will tell you that you have to contact a voter six times to get them to show up to the polls. And that number is shocking some public health officials. But what Colorado is doing is applying those political principles to the vaccine. They're setting up phone banks, just like a political campaign would have, to reach out to certain populations, whether they're near a clinic that just popped up or whether they're part of the vaccine-hesitant population. Rural folks, for instance, conservatives are another example. Is it working? So far, it is working, but it's slow. Healthier Colorado, the nonprofit here working with our governor's office to manage this program, says that they've gotten more than 1,000 people to sign up for vaccines. But they've been working on this for a month now. I mean, these phone banks are tedious. The average call time that these volunteers have when they're talking to people is 10 minutes. And it's going to take some time to get more and more people vaccinated. John Frank is Axios' Denver reporter. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. The Biden administration yesterday officially reversed course on the number of refugees to be allowed into the United States, 62,000 this fiscal year. This comes two weeks after President Biden said he would keep the record low limit of 15,000 that former President Trump had instituted last fall. We last talked to Suzanne Akra Sahul, founder and executive director of the Syrian Community Network in Chicago, when the Trump administration made those historic cuts. So we wanted to check back in with her. Suzanne, thank you for coming back. Thank you for having me. What are people in the community telling you? Well, first, um, obviously, when a few weeks ago, when the Biden administration made the announcement that they will keep Trump's numbers, everyone was extremely disappointed. We were very upset. And then we saw that because of the community pressure, there was a backwalking of, of the decision. I have uh, different ranges of emotions. People are very happy. People saying this, this can't be done. How can this happen? There's no infrastructure still. But I believe it can still happen. We may not reach the 62,000, but, you know, if we come close, I think that's good enough. If you can get one child into school. And if we can give hope to one family, this will be success. But of course, we want to give hope to many others. You alluded to President Biden's campaign promise to allow 125,000 refugees this year. Is there an infrastructure to do that, given how the former administration handled things? Much of the infrastructure that was created before was really gutted, basically. But I believe that since it's only been four years, that the organizational infrastructure and the organizational memory is still there. There are still people who are still invested in this work, and those people will come back. Um, so it may take some time, and there might be some bumps along the way, but it can happen if we really invest in the infrastructure to rebuild the refugee program in the United States. How have Syrian refugees in camps outside the U.S. weathered this pandemic? 
I know it's very hard. There's no idea of the social distancing and not to mention that many people will not have access to the vaccine. So they might be some of the, the last people to get vaccinated, which is really sad because you have people living in such close proximity and a lot of vulnerable people, elders, young people, pregnant mothers, uh, fathers with diabetes or high blood pressure, people with heart disease. So it's really heartbreaking to see. Suzanne Akras Sahul is the founder and executive director of the Syrian Community Network in Chicago. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me. Before we go, Washington, D.C. and New York City are taking some big steps forward on reopening. Yesterday, Governor Andrew Cuomo said he's lifting capacity restrictions, paving the way for restaurants, museums, even Broadway, to fully reopen by May 19th. And tomorrow, the first Smithsonian Museum in D.C. reopens, the National Air and Space Museum's Udvar Hazy Center. That's followed later this month by seven more, including the Museum of African American History and Culture and eventually the zoo. It's everyone's first chance to see the newest baby panda in person. Smithsonian admission is still free, but visitors will have to reserve timed entries online. That's it for us today. You can email us at podcasts at axios.com or find me directly on Twitter. And you can find more news by tuning into our afternoon podcast, Axios Recap. I'm Nyla Boodoo. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And we'll see you back here tomorrow morning.